Hi, this is Jason Barnard of the Strange Brew Podcast. I don't normally open the show this way, but today is an exception. Our guest today is Bob Young, who joined Status Quo in 1968 as their tour manager, harmonica player, and co-songwriter on many of the Quo's best tracks. I spoke to Bob just a few days before Rick Parfit's untimely passing, and as most of the shows actually feature Rick, hopefully in a small way, Carrying on with the show helps to highlight how much Rick will be sorely missed.
welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. Fabulous guest on the show today, and I, I really do mean that. I've got Bob Young here, and you, you may not have heard of Bob, but you'll certainly uh, be aware of his songs, especially with Status Quo in, in particular. We're here as well uh, to talk about his uh, reissued banded edition of his album Back in Quo Country. A selection from that, Down Down, is on that record, and we, we just opened with that. Bob, tell us about uh, Back in Quo Country and Down Down. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Yes, uh, pleasure to be here. And it's actually 30 years this year since, uh, since it was released. Coincidentally, it wasn't planned that way, but... Cherry Red, they wanted to do it, which I was very pleased to to work on it with them and uh, and put some extra tracks on. And Down Down's a song that Francis Rossi and I wrote. Goodness me, I think it was uh, we we were writing it actually in 1973 on the first status quo American tour. I remember being in the in the motel room uh, writing it. Yeah, there's some, there's a really good old demo of that of us doing that as well. We we always used to share a room. Francis and I always shared a room on the road, even when we eventually could afford to not have to share a room. Uh, we still carried on, which I think really helped us with our writing in, in a lot of ways for many years. And uh, down down, I don't know the the, the words and the, and the lyrics actually. A lot of it didn't make any sense, as I think maybe quite a few of our songs didn't. Uh, Francis was going along with uh, da 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 da. It's sort of uh, then down down sort of seemed to fall in naturally with it just for no reason, and it was just down down. Then we didn't think of anything else. It was just down down da 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 da, and then I said deeper deeper and down. He said, "What does that mean?" I said, "I don't know, but it sounds right." That's how clever that song is. Fantastic. And uh, back in Quell Country was uh, doing uh, many of the songs you wrote with members of Status Quo, but kind of in a, in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I, I've written, I'm not sure how many songs with Quo now, I mean, over the last sort of nearly 50 years I've been with them. I think well over 100, maybe 120, I'm not sure. The, the album, I, I'd fancied it for some years before. I'd always thought about it. I thought, you know, there must be, you know, and country music is something, or country music is something that Francis and I have always had a, a bit of a, a toe in the water with, you know, and uh, quite a few of the songs throughout the years. All, all of our songs were written on a, mostly on acoustic guitar, and then they were quoted up, shall we say, Down Down being one of them and, and quite a few others. And we always had a, a leaning towards some country stuff, uh, and... I just fancied when I came off the road with uh, with Quo, just because I needed to get on and do a lot of other things in my life, and uh, and then uh, I it was one of the things I wanted to do was uh, do my own solo album, and so I chose ten songs of, of, that I'd co-written uh, and put a band together and went in the studio and recorded the whole thing in about a week and pulled together a load of players you know good friends of mine and and everybody i asked said yeah they they put me on i'm definitely up for it and uh it was a great band uh we had a lot of fun in that whole week and people like mickey moody from white snake the legendary albert lee on guitar as well and billy bremner you know from rock pile and things and just all the players were top players 
I just figured that uh, there was no way that it couldn't sound good with that that many good people in the room who all got on really well. And that's pretty much how the album came about. And, uh, yeah, I was very happy to get that under my belt. We'll be playing one of the uh, tracks as the the show's uh, finale as well. Um, And, uh, yeah, we can kind of talk a little bit more about Back in Quo Country a bit later. Good. The next song is uh, The Price of Love, which is one of Status Quo's early uh, singles from 1969. But interesting enough, that has you on harmonica. How did you sort of get involved with Status Quo and then kind of into the the musical side of things? Cutting it fairly short before then, I I joined joined Status Quo on the road in in 1968. They just had pictures of Magic Men, their first single out, which was the big hit. And they were a very poppy, poppy group. I mean, I didn't particularly like them. You know, they had the flares and the old frilly shirts and all the sort of uh, funny haircuts and that. And I think they were surprised by their success uh, of that single as anyone else. But they went along with it, as you do. And uh, up until then, I'd, I'd been traveling before. I was living in London and I'd been running around roadieing just to make a few bob and to... Uh, uh, make a little bit of a living, enough to sort of eat and pay a little bit of rent. Then I was running around with uh, looking after or helping the roadies of Aiming Corner and, and the herd. And that was what I was doing, was just roadieing on what, the Gene Pitney tour in 1968, Status Quo on the bill with that package tour. I went along uh, with Aiming Corner to that. It was there I met Francis Rossi. Uh, I met the whole band, but Francis and I got on really well, actually, straight away. I mean, the first words he ever said to me was, effing bass players, he said, they take so long to tune up. He said, oh, he said, goodness me, he's a nightmare. Um, This is talking about Alan Lancaster, the bass player. And we laughed about it. Two weeks later, the managers came up to a gig in Nottingham when I was roading and looking out, driving the van and the gear with the herd who actually included included in that band was Andy Baum, who later became the keyboard player with Quo. The managers found me up there. They came and got me, and they, they actually offered me a job. They they said, oh, we, you met Mike Rossi, as he was known then. You met Mike Rossi a couple of weeks ago, and he and we're looking for a, a, a roadie, because we've sacked ours, because all the gear got stolen, and uh, so he's gone, and we need somebody to start quickly. Uh, Mike... Francis said, uh, you know, why don't you check out that Bob Young bloke who I met a couple of weeks ago and uh, see if he's free. They offered me the job. I, I said, quite honestly, well, I've already been offered a job with Jethro Tull, actually, £10 a week. You know, So they said, well, if you can start on Friday, then uh, we'll pay you £15 a week. And I thought, well, it's a done deal. So the following Friday, I did actually start driving the van with the equipment. I was the roadie and... A couple of the band came came in the van with me, and I thought, oh, you know, this is all right. This is a bit of fun. This will, you know, if I can last a couple of weeks with this, that'll do, and then I'll move on again. And here I am, 50 years later. It's like being when they say, you know, sometimes you're in the right place, the right time, and things happen for a reason. Well, the sliding doors situation with that, I could have gone after two weeks, and I could have been doing something completely different now. Anyway, getting back to that song, I mean, I I played a bit of a harmonica having sort of uh, done the busking thing and everything, they needed harmonica on this song, The Price of Love. And said, go on, Bob, you might as well do it. And it, it was as simple as that. I played the harmonica, 
and I eventually became the roadie with the most TV shows under his belt. I don't know many roadies that did a, quite a few Top of the Pops over the following couple of years. Stage, as well as being the, I went from road manager. As soon as we got a car, 
after a, within the year, we got a car. So I drove the car and became a tour manager. And we got a roadie in to do the gear. So we just all got on so well right from the off. And the first song I actually wrote, in fact, was uh, with Alan Lancaster, the bass player. And we wrote a thing, uh, which I think you probably play, called Antique Angelique. Yeah, it was just a an easy start with them because we got on so well and, you know, and it's, and I can't say that we've ever had a fallout in 50 years, you know, other than uh, I've sort of always been the one to talk to everybody when they didn't talk to themselves and sometimes it's still that way. Oh 
it's interesting the progression that the status quo had from you know more of the sort of pop psychedelic sound which is around in that early period into a sort of more sort of blues rock uh, sound and, and you were kind of integral with that especially with some of your songwriting um an album that kind of really marked that transition was Mark Kelly's Greasy Spoon and one of the songs from that is Shy Fly which you wrote with Francis again yeah I love that song my background was always blues folk and blues Bob Dylan all the old bluesers and all of that stuff and you know and I used to playing folk and blues clubs uh, in Basingstoke in my hometown um, when I was a teenager. I can't say that I was responsible for them sort of going from that poppy thing because they hated it, to be honest. At the sound checks, they would always play the old rock and roll stuff. But they were in this early bubble of um, having to pretty much do what the management said. You know, you've got to hit record, you have to promote it, this is how you look, and, uh, and you have to get on with it. You know, when I started writing with them, and then especially with Francis, Francis Rossi, we just sort of veered towards the sound that it eventually became. You know, everybody felt they were naturally going in that direction, and they wanted to go, and they rebelled. And that's how Mark Kelly's Greasy Spoon, the album, which I think was the third album, and there was one in between called Spare Parts, but... um, but Mark Kelly's was the one where they said, I sort of, you know, this is how we're going to do it. This is the songs we're going to do. And, you know, the management had to put up with it. The early management had to go along with it and the record company. And when we decided to do the sleeve that we did, which was the grottiest sleeve you could think of with no pictures of the band on there, it was total rebellion against uh, all the stuff they'd been told they had to do. By then, everyone was wearing jeans and T-shirts and plimsolls, and really, <laughs> because that was all they could afford, they didn't have to worry about having shiny shoes and creases in their trousers and you know iron shirts and their hair looking in a particular way. They grew quite naturally into what they became, and I'm so glad they did, you know, and I'm so glad I could, you know, manage to carry on writing with them for all these years. It was a uh, it's been a wonderful old journey.
time showed that it was absolutely the right thing to do. It was really kicked off a, a transition in the early 70s, which was incredibly successful. And, you know, you co-wrote quite a number of, of tracks and, and, and singles that were successful. And one of those early songs that marked out that success was In My Chair. Yeah, yeah. Um, once Roy Lyons had left the band, the keyboard player that was with them when I joined, when I sort of started with them, when when Roy left, it became a four-piece, and that's when the sound started to harden up a lot um, without that uh, Vox Continental keyboard, you know, squeaking away in the background. And in my chair, I, I, I remember we wrote, Francis and I wrote that uh, sitting in his mother's kitchen, on an afternoon, we wrote it, the whole thing, lyrics, everything in 20 minutes. You know, we put it down onto a onto a cassette as we did all the time. Then that's how we wrote. We put everything onto cassettes. And lyrically, I think it probably tells you what we were smoking because it was, you know, it was, we loved it. You know, everything we said in those lyrics, we thought we knew what we were saying. And in a way, they do make sense, but on the other hand, they're total nonsense, you know. Yeah, but it's a song that I love in it. And it actually, the reason it became a, a bit of a hit was because of the number of gigs that we were doing at the time in, in those days. It was, you know, it really any place that would take the band to play, that's where they played. And it didn't matter how much money it was, because it was never much money. We would do anything just to be doing a gig and just to get out in front of an audience. And that's how... Uh, the, the following of Quo sort of gradually built up. We had to fight a lot of prejudices, uh, prejudices of the, you know, of the early look and the early sound and the Magic Men sound. But um, eventually, it just sort of it worked. You know, I remember we did a, used to do a gig regularly in Croydon at the Greyhound. We eventually started filling it and playing there regularly, probably once a month, and it was only held about sort of I don't know three four hundred people. But it was one of those gigs where you could actually judge how well you were doing every month and how much better you were getting every month. You know. Now, In My Chair was a real, what we used to call heads, you know, where they used to initially sit on the floor with their album sleeves under their arms and in their great coats. And, uh, and eventually they started standing up and banging their heads and everything else that went with it. And it's been the same pretty much ever since.
The uh, B-side to In My Chair is a song that's, uh, you know, stood the test of time and is, is uh, still well regarded. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right, yeah, Gurdon Dula. And Gurdon Dula is uh, another one that Francis and I wrote. Actually, the, it's credited to Manston and James because at the time we didn't want to put our name to it because we would, uh, let's say we were trying to do something a little bit um, <laughs> dodgy and move it, move it somewhere else. So we... But our names as Manson and James, but that was actually Rossi Young. And again, uh, Gurndula came about from, uh, we called it Gurndula, which was two friends of ours in Germany who we used to see every time we went over there, Gerd, Gerd and his girlfriend, Ulla. And so we called it cleverly Gurndula. It's lasted, the, it's, it stood the test of time, that song, because they still do it on stage now. They still play it, you know. It's, over the years, it's come in and out of this stage set, and they still do it now. I think on this current tour, I think if I remember, they're doing that. Yes, they are. So it's one of those songs that uh, is a real happy song. I think you know, it's, it's, it's a good feel song, and, and it's a semi-acoustic thing that it was done as. No, I love that song. Yeah, and eventually we got our names on it, and uh, people realised it was us. Yeah.
answer why next song is another song that that's definitely stood the test of time it's mean girl but this was um this is a track i understand that was released as a single by pi a few years after uh, the band had left the label and and but it actually became a hit it did actually yeah they, i mean when we left pi and went on to uh, the vertigo label from pi obviously wanted to i guess recoup any money if they were owed it or whatever it was but they decided to uh, and you can't blame them, sort of ride on a, a bit on the back of the success. And that was one of the songs that uh, we'd recorded, uh, signed to Pi. And it, yeah, it became a hit. And again, it's uh, it's another, in a way, it's another bit of a Quo classic. Maybe I'm just proud of all of them, you know. I think there's some I think there's some rubbish amongst what we've done, and there must be. But yeah, Mean Girl, really good, uh, really good track, and it was uh, very popular live on stage, you know, on all the tours that we did. Quick one, a mean, mean girl. Mean, 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 mean 
I think the uh, the song that that really kickstarted uh, that you know the really big success was Paper Plane, which is another uh, track of yours. Oh yeah, yeah. I've read that that was based in a poem, and but John Peel was really you know supporting that track as well. Yeah, I mean that uh, the lyrics and that they, they they stem from a poem of the uh, from a book that I'd I'd done in the mid seventies, uh, which John Peel kindly did the forward to for me, and uh, he was a good supporter. Days when a lot of people weren't supporters of Quo, you know, when we were, let's say, uncool, and yet to have the coolest DJ on the planet actually saying, you know, no, these boys are okay, it really, that was a really good for us and really good for the band. And Paper Plane, I, I, I love it. I, I mean, it's still one of my favourite songs, and they, they still do it after, after what, nearly 50 years live on stage. And yeah, the lyrics came about from one of the poems in the book, and that's how the lyrics started, and then they were twisted around to to suit the solo in that of Francis is so simple, and yet it's so effective. The whole song was just just magnificent, and, and uh, that sounds like I'm bragging, actually. So probably because I'm a, probably because I'm a fan of the band as well, maybe. <laughs> Forgive me. Would you like to ride my butterfly? 
In terms of your songs, um, do, do they often start with uh, the poems as you were talking about with Paper Plane, or does sometimes is there a, a sort of melody or riff there? Um, well, Francis and I have always sort of pretty much written in the same way. We, you know, we we would write all the time. You know, there was no specific let's sit down and do a song. We we just wrote all the time, uh, and uh, most of it because we were on the road in in hotel rooms. The way we wrote was we would, I, I, he would have a guitar, I would sit there, we'd have a an old cassette player, and we'd just see what came out and what came along, and sometimes he'd have a, a great rhythm and a riff, and that would inspire me to say, you know, you know, garbled, a few garbled words, and then eventually those garbled words would become something that Francis and I would talk about, and we'd end up bouncing ideas off each other we had a very comfortable way of writing and there was no there was no need to say that's a load of rubbish we can't do that although we did caroline on a line in caroline together we can rock and roll francis said you can't say that that's very uncool (laughs) we did and it became cool you know we we had a, a very natural way of writing and we would record everything onto a cassette player or sometimes we could finish a song like in my chair very quickly uh, other times we'd have songs lying around that we'd go back to over the course of a year you know so these days when we write songs it's more I'll go around to his place we'll sit there he'll have his guitar we'll sit there we'll have a chat we'll have a cup of tea probably have a little nap and then I'll go home and <laughs> that's about it <laughs> but it was a wonderful way of writing and, uh, you know, maybe not the same as I would write with Rick and, and the occasional songs with Alan Lancaster. It's been a lovely old trip, the writing trip with Francis, and I'm glad to say it continues to this day. That's great, and we'll be playing uh, one of the more relatively recent tracks with Francis uh, a little bit later on. Yeah, when we were talking about Paper Plane, you mentioned briefly um, about writing tracks with Rick, uh, Rick. 
Uh, and um, yeah, I'd like to play one of those songs, mystery song. And um, yes, I mean that's a, that's an excellent song. But I, I saw a documentary on Status Quo, and there was quite a, a funny story about uh, Rick writing um, that. Well, there is. Night. He wrote over one night. I mean, he's you know, I mean, he he said he wrote the whole thing over in one night. But basically, I mean, yes, he had that riff going, and uh, there there were a lot of, I guess. It wasn't it wasn't really bad stuff, but there was quite a, you know in the seventies substances around, so we call it, and that was a, a bit of a speed period um, that uh, everyone was going through, and you know, Francis had put a teaspoon instead of a flake, couple of flakes into a cup of tea for him at, at the evening, and uh, he was there the next morning. We, we'd gone home, came back, and he was still sitting there playing this same riff. Uh, and we wrote the lyrics between us. I think I wrote quite a lot of those, but we we came up with this uh, story about a lady of the night, basically, and uh, we wanted to write a, an actual story, and, and that's what this was. But the riff was so strong, the rhythm, it just worked. You know, There was no discussion about, oh, well, that's rubbish. It really did work from the off, and, and it's again, it's another one of my favourite songs. And there's a nice intro on the original that uh, they've never played on stage. But, uh, yeah, lovely old song. Marvellous. Well, let's play a mystery song from the Blue For You album. Yes, please. Thank you. 
We're also playing a, a, a track that's uh, a real favourite of, of the bands, and um, I think it's on um, certainly as some extra tracks on the recent acoustic album. It's uh, Living on an Island. Shall we uh, segue from an early demo version into the sort of full version of this song? Yeah, that'd be nice, and then I'll explain how it all came about. Uh, Rick, at the time, was uh, uh, they were doing a, a year out of the country for tax reasons, and people were in different places, Francis a lot in Ireland, Rick in between Germany and uh, Jersey and the Channel Islands. And I would go over to Jersey with him and just spend time with him. And we'd just hang out, we'd go and drink, do whatever, and go to clubs and and just have fun. But, um, you know, we had the writing in our heads that we wanted to do something. We, we had this little idea. And it came about actually in, in Rick's room, and he was he was sat on the toilet strumming away. And we just started it, and it, and it started to fall into place. And again, it was a song that didn't take too long to get the, the foundations of. And the lyrics uh, are all about, uh, they're, they're one of those things that everything about it did happen. Uh, and it was, a, it was a statement of where the band was at the time, I think, as well, with and our lyrics on that particular song, Living on an Island, the island is Jersey. And the opening line is one of my all-time favorites, which is uh, easy when you're number one. Everybody says you're having fun, smiling for the public eye when the body says it wants to die, which is exactly what was going on. You know, I mean, everyone was, you know, you, you were on the road, you were in the bubble and, you, you know, and everybody sees you as wonderful and everything. Well, you're not that wonderful all the time and you, you do feel shit sometimes. And uh, Huey's got a real nice place. Which Huey had a club. There's a guy called Huey who was the, had a club in, Jer- in Jersey that we used to go to. Uh, someone's going to be there soon, and I just want to see his face. I'm getting lonely in this rare empty room. So the whole story of that, it was nothing like a, what you would call a typical close song because everybody expected things to be rocky and heavy and all of that stuff. And it was one of those that just had this nice feel about it. And we never really thought it would be a single for Quo because um, as we were writing it, we didn't think it you know, it could be. But... Everybody seemed to like it. Once it was recorded, we thought it's got to be a single. And it worked really well and did very well. Easy when you're number one. Everybody say you're having fun. Smiling for the public eye. Your 
Everybody say you wanna die Living on an island Looking at another life Waiting for my friend to come And we'll get high
when we were talking about living on an island, you kind of indicated it was a bit of a sort of transitional period for the band and, um, it, you know, transition, I, I, I guess, in your life as well. Um, yes, and I mean, in, in mine, because, I mean, I'd, I'd, I mean, by then I'd been on the road for, I don't know, about 12 years or whatever it was. Towards the latter part of the 70s, as we had this huge success, you know, I mean, we were doing, it couldn't have been much bigger, you know, in Europe, in Australia, you know, I mean, it was just massive. When you're in that bubble, you don't actually realize how big you're getting and, and, and how famous the band is getting and everything you just get on with it and you do it and that's what you do every day there were certain tensions starting to rise and i think a lot of that quite honestly was because of the drugs that were around at the time and everybody started going into bits of their own direction as opposed to or fighting in the same direction everybody was having more of their own opinions which to be honest weren't always right because that's what drugs can do to you. You know, you think you're right. You're not necessarily right. But John Coughlin was the only one that has never taken any drugs. And uh, he's always loved a pint. And he's he's always loved a lot of pints as well. But he was on a different wavelength to us. I mean, we started off where we were smoking in the late 60s and throughout the early 70s. And then it it went on to different things later on in the 70s, and I think that's when the band started to move away from each other, shall we say, while they were still having to be together. And for me, I never fell out with them, but I just got to that point by the end of the 70s that I really thought I need to do something else. If I'm going to stay friends with them, there's no point in me being on the road with them because I know what's going to happen. Everybody will end up fighting, and it'll all end up splitting up, and I thought, the only way to stay friends get out of it and get away from it and get on with my life and other things and get to spend some time with the family and uh, and to write other stuff as well with other people. And uh, so I did. I sort of made the move. We didn't fall out. I just needed to make that move. And I'm, I'm so glad I did because we have stayed friends. We've never had a problem with each other. I still love them as much as I did then, you know, even though they may not all talk to each other still sometimes i do i still talk to everybody you know so um i've been a very in a very privileged position i think throughout the years and and while i've never been what you would an official member of status quo i'd like to think that in those years of uh from the transition through to the uh from playing to five people and to playing to 50,000 people you know it was a fantastic journey which I love being on, and I've managed to carry on writing songs with them, and Rick and I have written other things since, and uh, and Francis and I, like I say, we've we got back together, actually, well, I say got back together, 20 years ago, nearly, he he rang me and uh, said, oh, Bob, do you fancy uh, seeing if we can still write songs? It was as simple as that. We'd never fallen out, we hadn't, but we didn't spend lots of time together for probably 20 years we got together from there in the last 20 years i think we've written over 100 songs again quite a few have been on their later albums or albums in the last 20 years and uh, and I'm, I'm very pleased with that as well so leaving leaving the band at the time that i did was exactly the right thing to do it, it, you know it could have gone that we'd fallen out and we'd gone our different ways and we never talked again 
but it was never going to be like that. There was too much of a bond that we'd established as young men into the older men that we became. You know? mm. Yeah, one of those um, projects uh, was with uh, Mickey Moody, the Young and Moody Band. I'd like to play "Don't Do That." That's a, that's a really great single, actually. It is, isn't it? Yeah, the um, Mickey Moody, who uh, White Snake guitarist, um, he was in a band called Snafu. And they supported status quo on a European tour. And Mickey and I hit it off right away. I mean, my background, main background, love of the blues and the whole thing, and his also, um, we just bonded. Uh, but not only that, we had the similar kind of sense of humor. We very much the same sense of humor, which we still have. And that was in 74. 75 I think that might have been around 75 76 and we've remained friends ever since we started writing songs together just quite naturally not for any particular reason in in the sort of mid 70s uh, and we, we actually wrote a load of a bunch of songs that uh, and Roger Glover from Deep Purple bass player with Deep Purple actually heard some of them and said yeah it's really good you know why, why don't you do an album you know I'd like to produce it we thought, oh, this is okay. Yeah, let's do it. So we did. We went into the studio we, uh, with a very small bunch of players. Roger Glover produced the whole album. And because of our love of the blues and, and the J.J. Kale type area of music, the, the clapton type of area, it became, for us, just a, a lovely album to do which with songs on it that are very chilled, very laid back. And it's for us, it stood the test of time. You know, it was never a massive success, but it got great reviews. And uh, and young and the name young and moody seemed to, to make sense. Uh, now we're just old and grumpy, but uh, it, it, we we kept the name and we carried on, got the album out, and uh, we both actually joined John Coughlin's Diesel Band. If this is not jumping about too much. Yeah, so the, anyway, we, we've carried on writing and uh, we've done a lot since. We've written a lot of interesting jingles for Levi's and various other things and uh, written songs for Graham Bonnet and various other people. And again, that's been a, a relationship of uh, since, what, say, 75, so how many years is that? Is that 30, 40 years? Well, again, one of those things where you meet somebody, you get on well with them, and you become lifelong friends. And, uh, and that's one of the joys of being in this business. You do meet some interesting people, and if you can become lifelong friends with them, then that's a huge bonus. You were talking about interesting people, and the video for Don't Do That has quite a number of interesting people. How did that come about? And tell us who's in that video. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't Do That was, it was a song that sort of, I don't know, we, we, the record company actually said, let's do a single. And let's do a video and we thought okay well we decided to, to do it and the band that we put together Mickey and I being a bit sort of off the wall as well Cozy Powell the wonderful drummer was a, an old friend of ours so we said to Cozy you know ask Cozy would he do drums on that track yep and uh, then uh, a friend of ours a singer called Ed Hamilton we, we got him in because he had the right sort of voice for the song it was me on harmonica, Mickey on on guitar. Then we thought, well, we need a bass player. So we asked our old mate Lemmy, 
and uh, Lemmy said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for that, you know." And and he agreed to do the video and everything. And then we thought, okay, well, backing vocals now. Should we get on backing vocals? And uh, I don't know whether it was Mickey or I said it. You know, well, how about the Nolan sisters? And it was one of those stupid ideas. And again, they said, yeah, oh, fantastic, we'll do it. So we had this band, and we, we shot this video that is out there somewhere on YouTube of the song Don't Do That with Lemmy bouncing around with the Nolan sisters, all of us just having a ball. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good song, I think, a good uh, Good thing it never did much business. I think it went in at about number fifty or something like that. But uh, but one of those that I'm really you know I look back on and Mickey and I go, God, I'm so glad we did that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. Oh yeah, yeah.
were talking about uh, you know writing back with uh, Francis in the past twenty years or so, and um, one track I wanted to play was from uh, the status quo album Heavy Traffic, which kind of marked a bit of return, you know, to the band's roots of the early seventies, a bit of a heavy sound, and uh, one of my favourite tracks. Uh, from that is all stand up, never say never, which really kind of rekindled that love of you know the heavier sound. Yes, when Francis and I started writing again, and and when we got together for the first time, we didn't write a thing. We actually spent three months talking, just getting together every day and talking, and uh, uh, and the songs. Actually, there was just the first song we ever wrote was a thing called uh, "Let's Start Again." <laughs> Strangely enough which has never been released or anything, so maybe that'll see the light of day. We started writing, and it, it came back very naturally, and, and, and they will admit themselves in the sort of uh, throughout the you know, late 80s, maybe 90s, and various things. There's been some albums, which they're not what they would call albums that they're very happy with. And when Francis and I got back together, we started writing, and the songs that we... Uh, that we wrote seemed to have a lot of the feel of the, let's say, the period that I was with them on the road anyway. And quite a few people say that that, that particular album, that the album that uh, came out, the first album that uh, we had quite a few songs on, uh, was one that was a, a little bit, again, of a turning point for them. And again, I was very pleased to have been a part of that. And... Uh, uh, it was a successful album, had some really good songs on it, and from there it was sort of no looking back really for us. Oh, stand on, let me hear you say never, say never. Oh, hands up, are you ready for the weekend? Are you ever?
never say never Oh, hands up, are you ready for the weekend? Are you ever? Oh, stand up, let me hear you say never say never also featured on some of the uh, Frantic Four t- uh, tours, haven't you? Yes, because when the Frantic Four, the original four members, you know, Alan, John, Rick and Francis, decided to go back out and do a tour, you know, really for the fans almost demanding it in a way, when they decided to do that, having played harmonica on pretty much every night for 12 years on every gig, as well as being the tour manager and, the, and everything else, it was sort of, uh, they were going to be doing songs that the four of them had done, so that was really pretty much up until uh, the early 80s, 81, whatever. And a lot of those songs had harmonica on it. Uh, Roadhouse Blues being a fine example of, uh, of me on stage every night, and then you know, if, if there was The Price of Love or Down the Dust Pipe, I was there to do it. So it was quite a natural thing and, I, and in fact I'd have been very disappointed if I hadn't been out on that tour with that uh, that reunion tour and I think the fans the Quo fans uh, actually were quite pleased I think to see me and I felt very good about it and we had a good time and to the point where we did another tour the year after where we put in a load of European dates as well I don't think Francis enjoyed it as much as the rest of us did uh, Francis doesn't like looking back on anything, you know. But he played his arse off, you know. I think he, I think he was playing for stuff like he, like he hadn't played for a long, long time, in my opinion. And we all got on well, and it was one of those two tours, two big tours that we did. That again, we look back on and go, well, that's it's almost a closure for, in a way, of the very old quo, you know. You know, things have changed a lot in the last few years, um, but they can still go out and they can still fill arenas. And I'm very happy to say that there's a lot of my songs that you know that are still played, and and they still open up with Caroline every night, which is great. And that's our that's our final track today, but um, a, a different version to to what um, many fans will be familiar with. <laughs> 
Mickey and I, we've played that song many times in our own way and we recorded it ourselves at one point. I wanted to do that song on the In Quo Country album, as I did with a lot of the other Quo songs. We, Francis and I wrote that and it became a, it became a standard of Quo's. We wrote it and then Mickey and I recorded a version of it. The song started out as a very sort of slow bluesy type thing. And Mickey being the great guitarist that he is, he did pretty much the arrangement on the one that we've done on, on In Quo Country. And he's a great slide player as well, as we all know. But I wanted Caroline on there and we did it in a way a little bit like the original demo in a way, which um which was nothing like the way Quo ended up doing it as the single and as they do it on stage now, which is real hard rocking. And this is very, and the, the, my version of that is very country. And again, it's just, uh, it's just one of those songs. It's got, it's got a nice feel about it. Uh, yeah, and I think Mickey's guitar playing is the one thing that makes it stand out. And of course, my harmonica playing, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, before we go, you've got an official website where people can can kind of keep track of your activities. And I think you're, you're doing a book on the Cavern Club as well. I am, yeah. I mean, over the years, I've done so many things since I came off the road. I mean, I've, uh, I organized a concert up in Liverpool at Anfield, the first ever concert at Anfield. Uh, I did that on behalf of the Cavern Club up there, who I've been a music industry consultant to for 25 years or more. The Hillsborough families came to us and asked us if we'd put on a gig just to raise a bit of money because they needed money to carry on the fight and everything. And I've done so many things, you know, books, and I'm doing a big book on the history of the cavern at the moment, which uh, it's 60 years old in January, the club, and uh, and I'm putting the book together uh, with a good friend of mine, a uh, designer called Adrian Cross. That's going to be out in June. What else did I do? Oh, Raymond Hinnett and I, who was Frankie Miller's guitarist, we put this idea together of... Uh, doing a TV documentary featuring all the great strap players. And we put this list together and everybody said, you'll never do it. And we said, well, we're going to. And we got EMI to actually give us the money and the backing to do it. And we put this list together of guitarists that we wanted to interview and have in the film. Starting with Eric Clapton, of course. And then we brought uh, George Harrison, you know, Keith Richard, uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Jeff Lynn. we wanted. Uh, we'd had this whole list that everybody said, no, you're never going to do it. Um, well, we did, and we got everybody in it, and we interviewed them around the world, and that was two years of writing it, putting it together, going out, interviewing them. And that was another thing that I could never have done if I'd have stayed on the road with Quo. So... I'm doing another book at the moment of an autobiography, really, for next year I'm starting. Just so many things I've been able to do and been lucky to do, and and I've had a lot of support from a lot of friends, and uh, and I've been able to travel the world as well as... I've always loved the tour managing business side of things as well, and I've, I've toured... For, I was with Richard Ashcroft for five years. There's a Croatian classical pianist called Maxim, um, who's a superstar in, in China, Japan, you name it, in Asia, and done a lot of tours with him. Vanessa May, the violinist, I, I did 
did a two years with her traveling around the world you know i've been really lucky in in my whole life to to have done what i've done and to still be knowing that i still haven't got enough time if i'm around for another 30 years because you know i've got so many ideas that and and it's not for money that i do it it's because i just have to do these things and uh and another wonderful book of poems will come out, and that should sell by the dozen. It's a good life. It still is. And uh, and to still be hanging out with everybody that I've grown up with is a huge bonus, a huge bonus. Fantastic. What a great way to end. And, um, we're you know, we're playing uh, you know, such a wonderful track, Caroline. Um, but an alternative version uh, from the uh, the new expanded edition of In Quo Country. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Bob. Oh, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed that. You know, this, I hope everybody's enjoyed it as well. You know, there's so much, so much you can talk about when you've had 50 years in the music business, I suppose. And uh, I don't think I'll make another 50, but I'll give it a go. <laughs>
Strange was the show.